Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March 2nd, 2015, and this is episode 1529 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it is Monday, so I've got a listener feedback show. This is where you send me your feedback to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put a question for Jack or comment for Jack or something like that in the subject line. But make sure to put the initials TSPC in all emails to me. That'll make sure I can dig them out of the spam filter. If you email me for any reason, that is a really good thing to do. Tango, Sierra, Papa, Charlie, TSPC for the Survival Podcast in the subject line. And I will be really likely to find your email, even if it's a week late when I finally dig through the spam monster box. Anyway, um, if you're going to be sending me feedback this coming week, uh, you, you just don't expect much email back from me. I will be in California all week. There will be a show today, a show tomorrow, and there won't be a show again until Tuesday of the following week. There are over 1,500 episodes that you can uh, peruse through. There's a random button on the uh, website, but stay tuned today. Today's got a lot of stuff in it, a lot of cool stuff. Before I get to that, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is Fortress Defense Consultants. Uh, Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors are just exceptional. And I know that because every single person from this audience that's ever gone and trained with Frank and his instructors comes back to me and says, these guys are fantastic. Now, let me explain what I mean by everybody. It's not just that every time I hear about it, it's good stuff. I, I have to believe with the frequency I hear that it's everybody that goes feels compelled to tell me how great it was. Uh, that's That's something really cool. Frank is just a consummate professional. He'll help you complete the triangle of gun operator efficiency. Because remember, you can buy a gun, you can buy ammo, you can purchase training, but you have to put it into practice to make it reality. Check out Fortress Defense and learn how to do just that, FortressDefense.com. Next up today, ready-made resources. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy on their website. They're the company that does what they say and says what they do, right in the name. ReadyMadeResources.com. You'll find it all. And I mean all of it, tactical, practical, guns, gardens, and everything in between at ReadyMadeResources.com. Long-time supporter of the show, so when you need something for your preps, make sure you check out ReadyMade Resources and show them the loyalty they've showed this audience for over five years now. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1529. I got three cool ones for you today. Uh, the economics of measles in Cuba and Honduras, an ottoman for your living room, and the Lutherans become Protestants. This is one of those ones where every one of them is a home run from Alex Shrug today. I'm going to read the economics of measles in Cuba and Honduras because it comes first. That's how I made my decision today. I'm just in that mood. You really might want to read an ottoman for your living room. You might never look at the word ottoman again the same way. Anyway, the economics of measles in Cuba and Honduras. Two-thirds of all native Cubans and half of all Hondurans will be dead within the next two years as a measles epidemic sweeps through the new world. A loss of labor due to disease has become a serious monetary issue. Indian slaves are dying in massive numbers, so are European slaves. For example, 2,000 Jewish children were forced to work the fields in the New World. Less than 500 survived. A business cannot sustain 75% labor losses yearly when they are paying huge transportation costs just to get the laborers into the fields. FYI, I'm Jewish, so I can make this calculation without being called, uh, well, 
you know. African slaves are even more expensive to bring to the New World, but sickle cell anemia helps them to survive. Also, African slaves are exposed to childhood diseases like yellow fever, with crops in the field that is biology as well as necessity that brings African slaves to the New World. My take by Alex Shrug. It is odd to think of yellow fever as a childhood disease, but usually African children are able to fight it off. Those who had insufficient immune systems died as babies and never passed on those genes. That process played out long ago in Africa. It is not the kind of disease prevention program I'd support, but the Indians experienced a similar process with measles epidemic. Measles can spread like wildfire, and in the modern day, if your kid catches measles, you, you can't take him to a daycare. You cause a riot, so you must stay home with your child. Takes, if you take time off from work, measles becomes an economic issue as much as a biological one. Yeah, I guess so. My take by this is, you know, I got a lot of flack during the whole, you know, everybody's going to die from measles if everybody's kid doesn't get a vaccine. And I said, wait a minute, I, I think people should be able to decide what goes into their own body and their, their, their own kids' bodies, even though I said I was actually in favor of vaccines and just found that the modern frequency is a bit excessive and that we can space them out a little more. And by the way, I, I fact-checked that with MDs who say there's no problem at all doing that. So um, those of you that are angry with me for having a logical, well-thought-out opinion that's backed up by medical opinion, I don't care. Um, but let's look at the bigger issue to me here is we don't know the past the way we think we do. We have been programmed to believe that things are a certain way and do something called cognitive dissonance. We, uh, we fail to understand things as they were. And when somebody points out how they were, a lot of times people get really angry and mad and yell and scream and gnash teeth and threaten each other. Like, well, everybody knows we just had black slaves. Um, I didn't know we brought Jewish people here as slaves to the New World in the 1500s. The reason we stopped using them is because too many of them died. I didn't know that. It makes you take a look at the whole slavery issue a little bit different. I think that we will never truly understand the evil that was slavery, and still in some places in the world is slavery, until we remove color and race and ethnicity from it and simply look at it this way. One human being viewing another human being of property is an evil thing, period. It's not just wrong, it is evil. It is evil incarnate. It is wrong. I don't care how it's justified. I don't care who does it. I don't care when it happened. It was always, 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 always wrong for one human to view another human as their property. My take by Jack Spierko. Anyway, with that, on happier notes, I, I have something coming on the air for you guys right now that doesn't usually happen on a Monday. A brief segment interview. Kevin Keegan from permaethos.com, one of my partners there, uh, is going to be on to tell to us about a few things. We're going to talk about a Zello weekend. We're going to talk about something we're calling Swale Fest 2015. We're going to tell you who this awesome customer is that we have for design in Arkansas. We'll finally tell you who they are. And uh, we'll tell you a little bit about what's going on with Permaculture Voices. And with that, I want to say, hey, Kevin, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. Great to be here, finally. Hey, Kevin, I've got you on as one of our partners in, in uh, Perma Ethos and um, as the, one of the owners of Elijah's Spring Farm uh, to talk about you know, kind of some things that are going on. We've got a bunch of stuff going on that people might want to know about in our audience. 
Uh, first up, we've got what you guys call a Zello weekend going on up there at Elijah's Spring. Yeah, we've got uh, the Zello crew um, set up a meeting for all their people last year, and we had a great turnout. We had about uh, 35 people come in for a weekend, and we decided we're going to do that again. And it's going to be the weekend of uh, April 17th. And we've got a lot of work planned for that weekend. Um, it's going to be going to be a great time. And if you're interested, get a hold of PA Prepper on Zello. Uh, let you know what's going on. And I guess we should tell people, like, becoming a member of the Zello crew is not complicated. It's not like you have to submit a urine test and wait for us to come back to you. Like, becoming a member of the Zello crew is... Get on Zello and join the TSPN channel, uh, and, and start talking to folks. Um, I will tell you that channel is highly moderated. Uh, when you ask to join, you'll get some sort of a response that indicates that you're actually a cognizant real human being. And if you don't respond to it, they won't approve you because it's really, it's really an incredibly well run channel. It's so well run that Zello actually is developing features based on our channel's feedback. But get on that Zello, guys, whether you want to come to West Virginia or not. And, Talk to all these great folks that are part of the TSP network. Um, anyway, additionally, like in conjunction with that, we need like some woofers. And woofers, again, would be people that come stay on site for a little bit longer, not just camping out for a weekend because we've got something. We just, we just named it like five seconds ago because we do stuff like that. Uh, Swale Fest 2015. Can you talk about what that is, Kevin? Yeah, we're finally getting to the main design. Uh, of the, the main hill above the house. And if anyone has seen the Permethos and Elijah Spring, uh, this is the south facing hillside above the house. And we've got about 2,500 linear feet of swales laid out that we're going to construct, uh, in that week before the Zello weekend. So we're looking for people there somewhere around April 11th for that week. We're going to put in 2,000 linear feet of swales and we're either going to do it with a tractor and a two-bladed plow, we had some great success doing that below the barn last year when you and Nick were out with us. And if it's too wet, we've actually got uh, heavy equipment on standby to come in and knock those swales out. So the the woofers would would be there to to help that. They get to see the construction, and there'll be a lot of work uh, shaping those swales. I think it would be a great time for somebody to come wolf, too, because, you know, with the farm having this establishment phase going through, there's times where we have tons of work, and there's times where we're not really sure what we're doing for a couple of weeks, and then it comes back to tons of work again. And I think wolfers actually get a lot more out of their experience if, the, you know, they show up the next day, we say, what are we doing? And we say, we're doing this today. Uh, I think they, they like that because they're there to learn, and I think this would be an awesome time for people to be out there. Yeah, we think it's a great a great way, and we're probably going to proceed this way for the rest of the year. Like you said, last year we just had people there, and we really <laughs> there there were no concrete plans, as you know. There were times where we were feeding people because they were there. Exactly, because we feed you if you wolf, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Including when we go, we don't know what you're doing today, uh, and you go contemplate your navel under the Bodhi tree or whatever for a day, and then. We, you know, we put food into you. Uh, so it's kind of, you know, wolfing kind of goes that way. You, you get a place to, to crash and you get fed uh, and you get the experience. And we're trying to cycle the experience along with activities that are planned this year. And I think it'll, I think it'll be a lot better for us this year. And I think we have a lot more direction on the farm as to the way we're going with Elijah's spring. Definitely. You know, we got our, we got our first test run of uh, chickens done uh, last year. They ended at the end of October. Uh, we've got 
the first batch of hogs, we had 21 hogs and a few of those have graduated now to Bacon University and <laughs> the rest, the rest will go very shortly. Um, but it's the, the big, the big swale push now. We're trying to get some more permaculture in there. And just to give the listeners an idea, we have 5,000 trees ordered. So we are, we're going with Mark Shepard's stun method, uh, on steroids here. Yeah, because that you know people hear that and they go, "That's a lot of trees." Well, it's all going on roughly 18 acres, and of that 18 acres, there's a few acres that are well, you're not planting on it; it's too steep. So let's call it 15 acres uh, that's being planted with 5,000 trees. That that's that's pretty significant, and that's just the trees. Yeah, and that's you know the the nice thing about this is we we got these trees from the West Virginia State Nursery. At a very great price. And by buying 5,000, we essentially got almost 2,000 for free. It would have cost us the same to buy 3,000 as it did for five. <laughs> so we're just going to put them in and the ones that survive, great. Uh, if it gets to the point when we want them spaced out, we'll chop and drop and yep. uh, yep. let nature make the selection. I, I agree with, with Mark and quite a few other permaculturists that have talked about planting, you know, chestnuts and hazels and whatever from seedlings and finding the trees that produce fast, early, and grow strong. And when you have 10 of them occupying the space one gets to occupy, you have no sympathy when the chainsaw comes out. It, you just start taking out the losers. And if you have one and you're going to have to replace it and it's all sickly, you're sitting there looking at it going, I don't want to do this. So, and you're right, Kevin. I mean, I've been buying stuff just for my little place and, you get to these points where you just look at it and you go, I'd be stupid not to order another hundred trees. Yeah. Because it, it, it literally does cost the same with certain price breaks. And that's something our listeners should think about when you're ordering trees. You can order one tree for 20 bucks, you know, from so and so catalog, or you can go order a hundred trees for $60 from your, your state nursery or from places like Lawyers and, uh, Burnt Ridge and other places like that. So something definitely to consider. Anyway, we've got some pretty big news about what Permaethos is doing off of Elijah's Spring Farm. We've we've hinted around about what this is actually all about, uh, but I'm going to give you the honor, Kevin, of uh, actually telling people what's actually going on and what we're actually doing and with whom. Well, that's great. Uh, I know that, like you said, you've put this out there that we've worked on some projects uh, in Arkansas, and we're finally ready to release that, that we've actually been contracted by Alcoa to design some of their buffer lands around one of their plants uh, in a permaculture and sustainable agriculture method. And so Permaethos teamed up with Mark Shepard and his restoration agriculture development team and uh, the Permaethos crew and the RAD crew went out and spent two days in Arkansas and came up with a design for sustainable agriculture at that plant. And we're getting ready, hopefully to start implementing that uh, in the very near future. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty exciting. We were told that there would be what, four or 500 acres to look at. And then we got there and they showed us four, four, what they called paddocks from the, the cattle grazing days. And we're sitting here looking at these paddocks and going, well, that's about 390 acres on those four paddocks, and we start looking around behind us, and there's more behind us than in front of us, and we've already been told we're going to drive to the other side. And we're finally like, well, how much land is there? And you want to tell folks how much land there was roughly there? Yeah, 1,400 total acres. 
<laughs> and we've come up with a plan if they want to go and just get the earthworks done because they've got equipment on site to do it with for the whole 1,400 acres. Um, and, and I have a sneaking suspicion they might decide to go for it with the earthworks because once they have their equipment dedicated to doing that and once they've got their operators trained by our folks on what to do, it's easier just to push through to the end and be done with it than to go in and come back out and go in and come back out. Uh, planning it might take a while, though. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty impressive. Uh, and I'm, I think we would both agree that it was really a good idea for us to bring Mark and his guys in. Um, to assist us with something of this scale, with a commercial agriculture component to it. So we know the permaculture stuff, but trying to make permaculture fit commercial ag and harvesting equipment and, and what have you, I, I think that we've really kind of done a bang-up job for them. They can, they can get that piece going. They can graze cattle through it. They can lease the land to graze cattle through it without changing much of anything. It's actually easier to control the people you're leasing to after we get the earthworks in. It's pretty phenomenal, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about it more at per, uh, Permaculture Voices. Which uh, we're we're heading next, right, Kevin? That's correct. We're out of here. Uh, I'm out tomorrow. I think uh, Jesse from Elijah Spring is already on his way out there today to get rid of get out of some of this cold weather and uh, enjoy that California sun. Yeah, I'm tired of the snow and ice. We were talking about that earlier, and I'm actually really tired of snow and ice in places where the the government doesn't know what to do with it when it comes because it comes so infrequently. But I'll be out there Wednesday. I'm, I'm flying out. And I will be there for the whole conference, and I'm sure we'll have some meetups and things like that that we can organize on the fly for people that are uh, followers of Permit Ethos, the Survival Podcast, and, and hopefully we can rope in people like uh, Mark and get some time with him. Uh, it's hard to do. He moves awful quick from one place to the other. Uh, and and uh, I just heard from Toby Hemingway, who's going to hang out with us out there, so that'll be cool as well. Yeah, great. I, I'm really excited to go out there and uh, put some faces with a lot of these names. Absolutely, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with me this morning. I know, like me, you're getting ready to get out of town, so you probably got a lot of things to do. So thanks for taking the time to be with us today, Kevin. And remind people again uh, what they need to do if they want to come out there and wolf or be part of the Zello weekend. Uh, yeah, you can get on Zello, like Jack said. Uh, go sign up, and they'll add you in as a member. If you want to uh, come out and wolf with us, there is a woofer application form at permaethos.com. Just fill that out, and uh, somebody will get back to you, and it's great. Again, the dates, uh, we're looking for woofers somewhere around April 11th through the 19th, and the Zello weekend is going to be uh, the 17th through the 19th. Very cool. Well, that gives everybody that wants to participate, you know, different levels of time commitment that they can, you know, be part of. So, and I guess we should note, like, the Zello weekend is like a, a volunteer army thing. It's not, we're, we're not charging or anything for that, right? That's correct. Uh, we're going to provide provide food, and uh, it's camping. Uh, we've got lots of beds, uh, but it will be bunk style and first come first serve on whatever we have at the at the farm. Bring your tent because you're probably going to end up in it. I guess would be the best advice we could give you. Um, yep. If you don't, then you have it to loan to the guy that was a little slower than you getting there. <laughs> exactly. And again, we're going to be plan on plan on getting muddy. They're going to be uh, five thousand trees to plant that week. Yeah, and on the on the on the camping thing, the the folks that are woofing, we we give them a rack unless we just have a huge number of them, right? They they get rack preference over the the weekenders. That's correct. They'll they'll all have they'll all have bunk space there. Okay, cool, cool. I just want to make sure they knew that. So I'll have links in the show notes today. Uh, Kevin, again, I thank you for being with us today, and uh, we're going to roll on with the show from here, man. Take care. Thanks for having me, Jack. All right, that was, it was great to have Kevin on. I'll tell you what, guys, if you're coming to uh, Permaculture Voices, Kevin and Charlie, who are the owners of Elijah Spring, and 
who really helped to make Permaethos even happen and have been just great partners in all of this are awesome guys. And please, if you're going to be there, avail yourself of the opportunity to meet with them and speak with them, etc. They're of, of the, of the five partners, myself, Nick Ferguson, Josiah Wallingford, Kevin and Charlie. They're the two that you probably know of or know about the least. Uh, they're kind of quiet guys that go about their business and do Let me just say this, really great things for the world, not just through permaethos and not just through permaculture. Uh, Charlie and Kevin are the people that type, practice the type of philanthropy that I talk about. It doesn't necessarily need to mean that I get a tax deduction to contribute to something. And In fact, it's more important what I'm contributing to than the fact that I get a deduction for it. Both of them have done well for themselves in their lives, and they've practiced that type of philanthropy uh, many times in many different ways. And they're just solid people, and I am blessed to have them with me in Permaethos and other things that we're doing. Anyway, before I uh, go forward with more stuff from your feedback, I actually want to take a moment here, and I, I want to talk to you guys about someone who left us last week. Um, those of you who are Star Trek fans probably know exactly where I'm going, but it's a gentleman named Leonard Nimoy. I think he might be one of the most well-known people in the world, honestly, even to people who are not fans of Star Trek that simply know of it, know of Mr. Spock and Leonard Nimoy. And, and Mr. Nimoy did a lot of things beyond just playing an actor in a, a 1960s-era uh, science fiction movie or a science fiction series. Um, I want to talk about more about this, but before I do, and I want to talk about the lessons that a gentleman like Mr. Nimoy leaves behind for us, and some other great people in the, the science fact and science fiction world that are gone now, what they leave behind for us. But before that, I'd like to play something for you. Many people don't know this, but Leonard Nimoy was also a magician, a musician of sorts, and he had an incredible voice for narration. Um, he also sang. I won't say his singing was horrible, and I wouldn't say that even if I thought so to someone who I find... Uh, such a, a wonderful person, uh, you know, so close to their passing. But let's just say his singing wasn't the greatest thing in the world, and I don't think he ever won a Grammy or anything like that. Um, but he was actually a pretty incredible composer. And he composed music as well. He was also a photographer. And I can't really play a picture for you. He did some pretty amazing photography, though. But I can play something that he composed for you that he narrates in, that he is in his Spock character for. And this is called A Sad Planet, or Voyage to a Sad Planet. And I'd like you to listen to this, and thanks to Brent at Pr in Prince Edward Island who sent this to me. So I want to play this on the air for you now, and I want to come back and talk to you about why it actually matters that we have people like Leonard Nimoy in the world when they're actors in a science, a science fiction series. You think, well, what do they actually accomplish? I want to come back with you and share some of the things I feel that people like this have accomplished for mankind. But first, Leonard Nimoy's A Journey to a Sad Planet. Stardate 2434.2. First officer's log. On a routine patrol flight in the Milky Way galaxy... I discovered on our space sensors an unidentified planet careening wildly in an eccentric solar orbit. I ordered an immediate investigation and with much difficulty maneuvered our ship for a temporary orbit. Upon beaming down to the planet's surface, all I could see were ruins. Ruins of some type of civilization 
crumbled buildings, deserted streets, charred vegetation, all covered with a thick layer of dust, which our scanners indicated as intensely radioactive. I proceeded to make a thorough survey of the area. According to my calculations, I could tell that some recent phenomenon or holocaust had occurred and destroyed whatever advanced civilization had existed on the planet. I found no sign of life. As I made my way back to the ship, I heard a sound. It came from a cellar in one of the nearby buildings. Carefully and slowly, I found my way to the source and discovered a human being. Or rather, what once was a human being. A scarred, disfigured man lying in the rubble. When I questioned him, he told me that this had once been a great world. They had abundance and plenty. Intelligence, beauty, love. There was enough for everyone who lived there. But the inhabitants were never satisfied. They wanted more. They wanted everything. And they started to quarrel amongst themselves. They could not live in peace. And they tried to destroy each other. In doing this, they destroyed everything. Their abundance, their plenty, their own intelligence, their beauty, their love. He told me that so far as he knew, he was the only living thing left, but that he knew he was dying. When I asked him the name of the planet, he replied, we called it Earth. Um, yeah, I have a lot to say to expand on this about the message that actually came from Star Trek uh, and what it was really all about when it was created by Gene Roddenberry. And I know that some of you are like, this is supposed to be the survival podcast and this is turning into the science fiction hour with Jack or something like that. Please indulge me. Trust me. There's always lessons in these things when I do them that apply to our modern lives and how... We can best survive as individuals, preserve our liberty, and how we can survive as as a species and as a planet. Um, and that should kind of bring it home to you. But I'd actually like to read something else to you. This is a, this is a, a bit of free verse poetry. It's called Lights of Hope. I'd like to read this to you. The stars shimmer brightly. Two men speak of them. One speaks of science. One speaks of dreams. I stand quietly and listen. One says they are but balls of gas, giant masses of nuclear fusion. That is all. The other says they are lights of hope, a symbol of how little we are, the very essence of existence. Again, the scientist speaks, truly we must both regret that we will never reach them in our lifetime. The dreamer responds, No, I've already been there. I smile and still say nothing. The stars now look different. That 
poem was written in 1993 by a young man who was sleeping on his friend's uh, living room floor because he was dead broke and trying to find his way in life. And that young man's name was Jack Spirico, yours truly. Those words meant something to me because of people like Leonard Nimoy, people that actually went into the real scientific components of space exploration like Carl Sagan and the creator of the Star Trek universe, Gene Roddenberry. They're what make young people think beyond themselves in many, many ways. I wouldn't say they are what does it, but they're one of the things that do it. And I owe an incredible debt, I feel, to people like that who made me the kid that when I was seven years old that I was going to grow up, become an astronaut, and bring moon, rock back, moon rocks back to make earrings for my grandmother. And I've said this before, but I find it very sad. A piece of me feels a lot of pain for the fact that I don't think any of our young people today dream of growing up and being anything as awesome as an astronaut. I'd like to believe that one day again we will. But I'd also like now to turn to the lessons of Star Trek and how revolutionary they were for the time. Today it's easy to look back and look at a lot of the, the, the special effects and go, wow, that's, that's really something, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that looks real. Um, especially like the first season with the lasers on the, oh, God, you know. But that wasn't what Star Trek was about. I remember listening to a documentary on Star Trek with some of the actors from the original series. And the, the lady that played Lieutenant Uhura, the communications officer on the bridge, was, was speaking. And she said after about the third or fourth episode, she was talking to Mr. Roddenberry and she said, we're doing reality plays, aren't we? And he said, shh, you'll ruin it. A reality play is like a moral-based storyline designed to give you a takeaway and to give you a new sense of morality and challenge your beliefs as to how you've been currently programmed to believe that they are. That's what a morality play is. It is not just, hey, we should do this because everybody knows we should do this. It's often, we should be doing this and we're not. When I've heard comedians make a joke that, you know, Star Trek was, you know, it, it, that many years into the future and they still had a black woman answering the phone in Lieutenant Uhura. That's pretty short-sighted. The bridge in that show was made up of the senior staff, the commanding officers for the entire starship. By the way, in the late 60s, when we were all worried that we were going to nuke each other and the Russians were the enemies, and the guy flying it was Russian. You had a Scotsman that was the engineer. You had a woman that was in charge of communications, reaching out to new life and new civilizations. And you had an alien that was second in command to an American who sat in the captain's chair. That was a little bit of a pipe dream at the time that something like that could ever happen. And if you watch the old show, you'll see some segments of sexism, but the, the view forward was pretty outstanding. And many of the things that were wrong with the time have been corrected. Not because of Star Trek, but because I think Roddenberry and the, many of the members of the cast, including Nimoy, were visionaries that, that saw what the future could be. 
and and felt that by wrapping this into a story that people might take it in and consider it instead of rejecting it out of hand. And I'm amazed at people who claim to be rational, how when you present things to them, factual things that can be verified, they will just, just repel them out of hand. It can't be. It doesn't matter. Recently I published something I won't go deep into today. We'll, we'll talk about this in a future episode. But did you know the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America was written by a socialist and had a socialist agenda? It did. And you can verify that for yourself if you'd like to. But the original pledge was done with a salute that looks more like Heil Hitler than the hand over the heart. You can verify that for yourself too. And I recently put out a post on Facebook about that, and I was told by quite a few people, it doesn't matter. Well, I, I, I think that it does. I don't think we can dismiss things out of hand without examining their origins. And the purpose of doing things with a reality play model like the Star Trek universe did, especially in that original series, was so that the ideas could be presented in a way that would actually be considered, rather than just simply reject it out of hand. It's impossible for a woman to have that level of responsibility. It's impossible for Americans and Russians to work together. Well, right now, if an American astronaut needs to get in outer space, he has to hitch a ride on a Russian rocket. That's a reality now. But the big thing that I don't think most people that aren't really kind of Trek nerds, and I'm a little bit of a Trek nerd if you can't tell, don't understand is there's an entire narrative. There's an entire storyline that the Star Trek universe is based on. And there's a whole storyline between Kirk and Spock and all the next generation stuff and all that and where we are today. It's not examined deeply. There's been some throwback episodes like, like Enterprise, etc. But the reality is the storyline is known and, and it is disseminated throughout the entire series as to what happened and how, how humankind got to that somewhat almost utopian looking state. And the sad planet, not quite to the level of destruction Mr. Spock describes it in right there, is how we get there. In the Star Trek universe, World War III happened, and we did murder each other with weapons of mass destruction on a global scale. And it took being knocked back damn near to the Stone Age for the remnants to realize what a horror and what a mistake that really was to start to see each other as fellow human beings versus Russians and Americans and Mexicans and blacks and whites and Asians and Anglos. That it took almost having our existence extinguished to realize that we all bleed red, we all breathe oxygen, and we all need and largely want the same things in our lives. And my hope is that that vision is not one that also proves to be correct, as many of Mr. Roddenberry's visions have. Because today we live in a world where we say, well, that can't happen. Hopefully we're right about that. But it doesn't mean that we can't still do massive harm to each other. And I think that the biggest lesson that people like Leonard Nimoy, Carl Sagan... Gene Roddenberry, and people that explore our own planet, like 
Another one of my heroes as a child was Jacques Cousteau, Marlon Perkins. Right, These guys that did things that were amazing before everybody was doing things like this and having it all canned. They actually just went out and did it for the first time. If we would actually busy ourselves doing great things, we'd have little time to be tearing each other apart. You know, back to the flag thing for just a second before I move on from this. Somebody commented in that thread and said the following. Well, if we're not going to pledge allegiance to the flag and honor the flag, etc., where do we derive our pride from then? I have never felt so sad for my people than to hear an American state that our pride should lie in a material object. And my response was, well, maybe if we got up our, off our collective American fat asses, turned off non-reality TV, and did some really epic shit that was good for ourselves and good for others once again, that we'd have something to be proud of. And there's many of us that are doing just that. Actions and their results when they're properly executed are what you have pride in. A piece of cloth that symbolizes what should be is not what you have pride in. And I'll end with this. I took an oath to the constitution of this nation. And that's where my loyalty lies. A flag is just that. It's a flag. It's a symbol. The nation got by for over a hundred years without the need to tell our children to pledge allegiance to a cloth. I think we've been largely misled in what that pledge actually means. And I know it's important to people. I don't want to offend anybody, honestly, here. Usually, I don't care if I offend you. Honestly, I, I know that this means to people what it means to them. But I would challenge you with this. What, does it, what good does it do to program words into a child before such time that they're able to contemplate and understand those words. What value is there in a pledge of allegiance from a person who cannot comprehend yet what that allegiance actually means and what it requires of them? And is it hard for you to accept that this sacred word, these sacred words may not mean what you think they mean solely because They were programmed into you when you were young enough to recite them to the point of memory, long before you understood what their significance and meaning would be. And might you feel differently if you were asked for the first time today to pledge allegiance to a flag, whether that, rather than to pledge an oath to liberty, individual liberty, individual freedom, individual rights and would you be so quick to state that our nation provides liberty and justice for all knowing what you know now having watched so many people's liberties being infringed upon and so many people fail to receive justice I'm just saying maybe maybe it would be better That when people pledged an oath or an allegiance to anything, 
that before such time as we program that into them, they know what they're saying. And what I know of people that are visionaries like Roddenberry, like Leonard Nimoy, Carl Sagan, is they avoided most of this stuff. They're not the people that tried to shove their politics down our face. They focused on doing wonderful things. So I'm less concerned about whether or not someone says the Pledge of Allegiance or whether they speak English or what God they pray to or don't pray to, what they believe or don't believe about spirituality, than I am what they believe about their fellow man, members of mankind and what efforts they're making to make things better in their lives, their communities' lives, and the lives of other people. And if we're going to survive... If we're going to avoid being the sad planet, then we need to think about that at a higher level. Anyway, with that, let's get into some other stuff to talk about today. Uh, this is going to be a, an odd episode, I guess, the way it's all kind of mixed up now. But uh, I felt those words were important for you to hear. Uh, let's take an email now and uh, see what else we can cover before we wrap up today. Just to break the seriousness a bit and, and shift the mood, I want to share a quick email I got with you. I got from uh, Ryan today. It says, thanks for making me start a business and be successful in growing plants, jerk. Your info is always helpful and much appreciated. Keep up the good work, your friend the cheese maker. So, <laughs> I often joke and say that no one's ever going to call me a jerk for getting them out of debt or getting them to start a business or getting their life more organized or in, in prep. And every once in a while, somebody emails me and says, all this great stuff, and hap stuff happened because of me, you jerk. And I want, you to, I want to tell you that when you guys do that, um, it's not the humor is not missed, and I usually respond with with laughing my ass off, you know, LMAO, um, as a brief response because it does make my day. Uh, when I hear that someone's life is better for the advice that I give on the show and that they're making headway with it, and they pay enough of attention with both the seriousness and the humor that I put out to be able to play along once in a while. Uh, it gives me a lot of hope that we can build that better better life that we're always talking about here on the Survival Podcast. So this is an interesting email here. Um, it comes from Jason. Jason says, Hi, Jack. I wanted to hear you go more in-depth into social capital. I think it's the most undervalued and underutilized capital that we can take advantage of. It's having friends pick you up for work when your car won't start or the local bar keep filling your growler even though you forgot your wallet. And on the flip side, it's dragging your ass out of bed to help your friend's mom when it's locked out of the house and being kind and courteous to those that wait on you. Peace, love, and anarchy, Jason. Um, yeah, I think we can go into social capital a little bit more and what it, what it really is all about. I think there's like... Various degrees of social capital, and what we've really talked about is, 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 you know, large social capital that you might gain with business or celebrity status or from a podcast and just reaching a lot of people. And, um, and I think that the problem with looking at it that way up till now is I've been presenting it that way to try to make the case for you that if you're building a business, that it should be important to you that you cultivate all the forms of capital in your business, not just financial, that you cultivate the experiential capital in your, in your workers, in yourself, in your vendors, in your contractors, and in your customers, right? And so when I get the social capital, I've been presenting it that way. And I think that what Jason does is brings it down to a, a different level. That there's a tremendous amount of social capital that's exchanged within all groups. And it can be summed up in this. You never know who your true friends are until you move. A true friend shows up when you're moving. 
Um, that's something that's hard to do. No one wants to move. It's, it's akin to having a root canal. Um, it may be worse. Uh, sometimes when you're having a root canal, they just knock you the hell out and you sleep through the whole thing. You can't sleep through moving. Uh, moving, even if you have movers come and move your stuff for you, is still a nightmare. No one wants to move. And the person that has, you know, five guys with pickup trucks show up on, on moving day, dude's got some social capital going on. And I think there's a lot of places that social capital can be cultivated And I think there's places where it's naturally cultivated and where we could do a better job in the cultivation of social capital. I think one of the great places where social capital is usually cultivated is in churches. Churches, temples, synagogues, you name it, I don't care what you want to call it, all of the religious institutions of the world um, tend to cultivate great social capital. And when some member of that group is down and out or needs help or just needs some assistance or needs through networking to meet somebody, it, it almost always just naturally happens. And I think it's why, regardless of what your religious beliefs are or are not, churches have been so dramatically successful as key components and positive components to our communities. And then I turn to another giant institution and think, where's the social capital cultivation there? And, of course, I'm talking about education, our school systems. What do we do in our schools to encourage our children to cultivate social capital? And I would answer the question with not a damn thing. I don't feel that we do jack diddly shit right now to teach our children the value of social capital. Because what if you, if you, if you try to explain social capital to the average Young person today, 7th to 12th grade, that, that kind of range, where at least they're at a level intellectually where you would have this conversation, it would go somewhere. I think what you would find is that they would equate social capital to popularity. The cool kids have the most social capital. And I think in high school, you could make the case that, that, that they wouldn't be wrong, but that's like a total misunderstanding of social capital and what it is and what it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to work and why it's, why it's important. Somebody had a post on Facebook today, I really didn't go deep into reading it, but it was basically you know, the case between going to an all-private education system versus an all-public education system. My response was, why in 2015 are we debating which form of 1800s technology is better? Why aren't we remaking the entire system? Why are we sending children to institutions that look more like minimum security prisons than they do places to cultivate and learn and gain knowledge? And I didn't think about it at the time because I hadn't read Jason's question yet. But where's the social capital training? Where are we telling children to place value in simply being good stewards, good citizens, and not the citizenry that we program into them with a Pledge of Allegiance, which is really a type of collective prayer? If you look at the way the Pledge of Allegiance is said by children who do not understand the words and you look at a a classroom of kids in a Catholic school like I used to go to in the fourth grade, saying the Hail Mary for the fifth time in a row, it's oddly similar. And I'll tell you what, you can say what you want, but when I was in fourth grade and you're just repeating the words that you had to memorize in a prayer, you don't, you don't contemplate them on a deep level. You're creating a programming to where I can recite all of these prayers still today, even though I don't, I don't share the faith in them anymore. They didn't make me believe something. They were simply being used as tools to program me. That's not, that's not social capital. 
I'm not saying that faith can't do great things for people. I'm not saying that I devalue your faith that you have in whatever God you believe in. That's great for you. But I am saying that if you're going to say something, if you're going to pray, if you're going to pledge, whatever it is, that it only has significance if you know the meaning of the words that you're saying. Where are we teaching children that today in school? How can we have social capital if people are being programmed to say words they do not believe? Isn't that another way of saying lying? I mean, it's not an intentional lie, but if you're pledging something or, or, or praying faith to something that you do not believe when you say it, is it not a form of a lie? And if we're teaching people to lie, how can we possibly be teaching them to tell the truth? And if we can't build a society based on the truth and trust with each other, how the hell are we going to cultivate social capital? Do you not think that a person with, with, with good, positive social capital is going to be a more well-adjusted human being in the world than a person without it? If you have social capital... What it means is that other people care about what you say and what happens to you. That's the most fundamental way that I can, I can break it down. That if I say something, you care what I've had to say, even when you don't like it, even when it pisses you off. Like I might have pissed off a bunch of people today for simply stating the facts as I understand them. And there might be people upset with me that the facts are the facts. They're actually more angry that I'm accurate than the fact that I've actually said it in the first place. If, it, if I was wrong and they could prove it, they'd be a hell of a lot less angry. Right? But the fact that the, it, it's, the fact's there and locked in makes them angry. But you know what? That's social capital. Because if, if I didn't have social capital, you wouldn't give a shit what I say. Celebrities have social capital. I think sometimes we give them way more than they deserve. But So Liam Nielsen came out, for instance, and said he thought there were too many GD guns in America. And everybody had a hissy fit over it. Well, why? Because you know who he is. People say that every day, and you don't, you don't bat an eyelash. You don't really care because you don't know who they are, and they don't matter. So we've actually falsely led ourselves to believe that celebrities have social capital in excess of what they really have. Because when somebody like Liam Nielsen says something negative about guns, this is the only thing that happens. All the people, all the people that already agreed with him, say yes, and all the people that already disagreed with him get angry. That's not social capital. That's just being well-known. When you can say something that the person who hears it disagrees with it, and even if they don't like it, even if it makes them angry, they then actually are caused to think about it and to contemplate it and to either verify their belief as valid through the challenging of that belief or to verify their belief as invalid through the challenging of that belief or to realize that the truth lies somewhere between what they believed and what they've heard and through that challenge they've come to a new understanding. Now you have social capital. Now you have, when someone is like, you gotta be wrong, and they, they storm off, but they immediately say to themselves, well, I gotta find out if this, I mean, geez, this, this guy says this, or this girl says this. I mean, I've never found them to be untruthful before. Maybe they're just wrong, but they gotta have, I respect them, so they, they must have a reason they believe this. I have to investigate it now. Even if you don't know that's, but when they come back to you and say, dude, uh, yeah, you know, I had a big disagreement with my brother-in-law 
about the the supposed chokehold that was used on on uh, uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name now, but the guy in, in New York City. And basically, I said, if I was on that jury, man, your brother, because he's a cop, your brother officer would be going to prison, or at least he'd be going to trial, right? If I was on the grand jury, there's no way I wouldn't say that there's not. And then you know, he basically said, I know you think you, I know you think you're right about this. And you might have all kinds of things that you would point out are wrong with the system that I might even agree with. But under the law, if you investigate this, you're going to find out that if you were on that grand jury, you'd, you'd have to vote the way they did. That they followed the law to the letter. Like, ah! And we agreed to disagree, and we drank some beer together, and then I investigated it and found out he was correct, even though I didn't like it. Because my brother-in-law has social capital with me. If he tells me something, I know at least that he believes it. If he tells me something, I know not only does he believe it, but he has a reason for it. And I respect his intelligence enough to realize that he might be right. So I think that's social capital. I think just because you can send out a tweet and it'll be on e-entertainment or whatever the hell stupidity they put it on, doesn't mean you have social capital. It means you're well-known. But will anybody do something that they wouldn't have already done Because you've pointed it out or suggested it or asked somebody to consider it. That, that is what we need to be teaching our young people. See, you can't have social capital unless the people that you have it with have something for you called respect. They have to respect you. They don't have to agree with you. They don't even have to share your overriding ideology. But they do have to respect you, and they do have to trust you. And I feel that that's one of the biggest things missing in our society today is respect and trust for each other. And I think that's by design. I think the people that are in control do not want you to respect each other. I think that the politicians in this country, when they first you know, realized what the Internet was doing, they were very concerned about it. And then, you know, when Facebook and Twitter and all this came along, they started paying attention to that so they could spy on you and find out what you're doing and what have you. Uh, but then I think today, I think that every time a politician is kind of a little down in the dumps and wondering if they're really in control and they're really... I think all they do is go to Facebook and they look at us calling each other names and, and attacking each other and, and being hateful to each other over political differences. And I think they all laugh. I think they smile. I think they get, it's like, they're like the Grinch with the warm feeling in their heart, except it's a heart of freaking oppression and evil. I think that you are giving the powers that be everything they want. I recently saw a, a girl upset on her Facebook feed because she said that she, somebody in her, her friends list of all places said Obama was a Muslim. And then she later referred to this individual as a racist redneck. And my response was, the day you and that racist redneck, as you call him, learn to get along is the day we take our country back. Because the guy that's saying Obama's a Muslim is not a racist. He's a little bit, he's a legitimate question about the faith of our president. But here's my thing. I could care less whether or not Obama is a Christian or a Muslim. I don't care. What I care about is that he's a traitor to our Constitution. That's what I care about. That the President of the United States 
And the last several presidents of the United States, in my opinion, as a citizen, and I have every freaking right to say this, has been a traitor to our Constitution. They've taken actions that are in direct opposition to the Constitution, and they knew so when they did so, in spite of the fact that they swore to uphold and defend said same. That is a traitor. That is premeditated traitorism. I don't know if traitorism is a word. Treason is the right word, isn't it? It has a little more power. I like that word for that. Premeditated treason. To use power entrusted upon you to violate the Constitution that you swore to uphold and defend is premeditated treason. Every politician in this country should hear those words. But you know what? They won't give a shit. Because I have no social capital with them. Do you know who has social capital with them? The population as a whole. If this nation started to look to our leaders and say, listen, this is how we feel about you. You've been entrusted with a sacred duty and responsibility. And in being entrusted with that, you've sworn an oath to something. Something that matters. A constitution to our nation and at the state level, our state as well. And when you knowingly do things outside of the scope of your employee handbook, which is your constitution or constitutions, depending on your, your job, it's premeditated treason. Ooh, how much social capital would this country have if we stopped worrying about what we want and worried about first what should be? And I think the thing we could all agree on that should be first is if we have a collective agreement in the form of a, 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 of a document that sets forth the way in which we are to do business at the public level, that we should at least follow that document. Personally, I think that document is nowhere near restrictive enough on government. But I would be a hell of a lot happier as a person and as a citizen of this country if we would at least realize that it matters and follow it. And I think most other people would. I think the see, and this is what, what they don't want you to understand, and I think that where we're coming at this from social capital is I believe our government has willingly, maybe without knowing the term, but willingly and intentionally destroyed the fabric of social capital between citizenry. Because I think that the person who is what you would consider the die-hard, democratic, progressive liberal may not want the restrictions of the Constitution, but would accept them. And I think the die-hard, conservative, Republican, right, nationalist, may pay homage to the Constitution and lip service, but when they actually understand what it means, have a lot of things they don't like about it too. I would have done it that way. But I think in practice of living, if the government followed the freaking document, okay, I think then, I think then both sides in practice would be happier human beings. Now, for that to happen... They have to be able to talk to each other and respect each other and give and reciprocate social capital between each other. Why do you think your government works so hard to destroy that possibility? You know what I told my brother-in-law about the whole law enforcement thing? And I, I told him, listen, man, <clears throat> you, can try to, you can try to say whatever you want, but there are abusive law enforcement officers out there, and it's not a few. It's not a couple. 
It's a significant number, and we're seeing more and more and more of it. And the fact that even when you're right, people assume that you're wrong is a direct symptom of this disease that you guys have to try to cover up and back everybody even when they're wrong. And I know you guys don't do it behind the scenes. I know of lots of stories, including some with my brother-in-law, where cops have told each other, hey, knock it the F off, you're not doing this. But public-facing, there's that thin blue line. And there's a problem that needs to be solved. And the people that you don't like, the cop block types, are pointing at that problem. And that's why you don't like them. And the only way this problem can ever be rectified, and we can put protect and serve back on all the police cars, not just a few, is for those two sides, the good law enforcement officers, they're doing their best to help people and protect and serve and defend the, the, the innocent and the helpless. And the people that want the rights of the individual respected. Those two groups have got to have a legitimate, respectful conversation with each other. We have to have people that are chiefs of police and people who are the heads of organization like Cop Block sit down in the same room without hatred for each other and have a deep discussion. How do we fix this? And the people in power are doing everything they can under the sun to make that conversation not happen. And it's only today that I realize it is through the, 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 the de-weaving of the fabric of social capital between the individual groups. That is the mechanism of control. Because if, if we can have that conversation, well, gee, do you understand that the politicians view the police as a tool? The politicians of the world view military and law enforcement as dumb, stupid animals. Google that and find out who said it if you doubt me. Okay? And that's, that's the problem is that you have a law enforcement community that actually has allegiance to people that see them as nothing but a dumb, stupid animal to be used to enforce their will on others. It's a hard thing to accept that that's how you're viewed by somebody. So instead, they preferred that, oh, we're all viewed as heroes. Now, most cops are smart enough to know they're not individually a hero, but they sure like the fact that the group kind of has that, that aura about it. And, you know, they risk their lives every day. Every time a guy goes to right, I take it, he can get shot. Let's be honest. Right? You, if you want respect, you have to give it. Right, so those of you that are, you know, anti-cop and anti-law enforcement, and I want this, and I think this is evil, and this cop shot this kid, or flashbanged a baby, or whatever, and you're angry about that, okay, okay, fine, I'm angry too. But you're not going to solve the problem without people from that side. You're not going to solve the problem until you develop social capital with the people that you have a problem with. Boy, no wonder they don't teach it in our schools. No, what they teach is have worship-like adoration for those in power. Do everything the doctor says, do everything the cop says, do everything the teacher says, do everything your boss says, do everything the politician says, do everything the TV says. Listen to all of those in authority, except your parents when they conflict with these other authority figures of the state. If your teacher says something and your mom says something, your teacher's right. That's the message of the state. You want to talk about destroying the fabric of social capital amongst the citizenry, 
teach the child that their allegiance is to the authority figures represented and paid for by the state versus their own families. And you begin to rip asunder that fabric. This is a beautiful question from Jason. He probably didn't realize it when he asked it because it gets to the heart of what's wrong in our world today. It's a lack of respect for those we disagree with. Well, let me tell you, some of you may have emailed me certain things and gotten a very vicious response from me and think, who is this guy to say this then? Well, let me tell you where I don't respect you. When you email me and tell me that a person that doesn't vaccinate their child is committing child abuse, okay, then it's hard to respect you. Because I consider child abuse things like sexually molesting your child, beating your child with a belt. I consider those child abuse. And I know wonderful people doing the best they can who don't vaccinate. They are not child abusers. So when you hurl insults at people, when you call an action immoral simply because you disagree with it, do you know what the person you've said that to hears? You are the same as all of the people you consider immoral. I consider murderers immoral. I consider those that steal immoral. I consider those that lie for personal gain immoral. I consider those that oppress the liberty of others immoral. So if you refer to me as immoral, you've put me in that group. If you want respect, you must give it first. And you don't give respect by insulting another person's character. Their character. You can assault their beliefs. Anybody that cannot withstand an assault on their beliefs needs to examine their beliefs. You don't assault the character of an individual unless you have a good, clear reason to do so. Unless they've done you or some other person some actual harm, you do not assault another person's character if you actually hope to gain anything from a, from a constructive conversation with them. If you're going to challenge a person's beliefs, understand that you're already treading on thin ice. The, the ability of the average person to actually have their deep-seated belief challenged and not respond with anger and violence is 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 as thin as is is as a as a razor's edge already. If you add insult to it, you're not going to get anywhere. You can't call people immoral. You can't call people abusers and expect to have mutual respect. So the people that run this country would prefer that you did just that. They would prefer that the black man fear the white man and the white man fear the black man. They would prefer that we all resent the hard-working illegal alien that comes here to do jobs we really don't want to do, that we resent them. Oh, Jack, if they weren't here, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't be in Florida picking oranges. Don't say you would because you're full of shit. I want to know, who if all who in this entire audience, 110, 115,000 people a day, which one of you, right now, if it paid $2 an hour more, would quit what you're doing, get on a bus, and go to South Florida to pick oranges? One. One of you. And the answer is, not a damn one of you would. And if, they, it, well, and if you told me what it would take to get you to go do it, do you know what a, what a freaking glass of orange juice would cost? We actually should be looking at how do we do this without, a, without using 
people to such a level. With almost a slave labor mentality that's required to put juice in a glass. Can't we do this better? But no, we want to we wanna hate each other. There's people out there angry with me right now because I've actually pointed out that some of these people that come to this country illegally, and it is illegal. So now I've got both sides mad at me. They're not illegal. Well, yeah, they are. They violated law. They shouldn't be here. Okay, yeah, but they are. And we've created a system that's made it un impossible for anything else to be the result. There is no world where we've done the things that we've done, we've taken the actions we've taken, we've set up the system that we have, and we've all partaken in it where there are not 11 million illegal aliens in this country. And those of you that think we should just deport them all, you're delusional. You're absolutely fundamentally delusional. We're not going to deport 11 million people. But Obama says that, and I hate him. I don't like him either. See, I don't disagree with something just because President Obama said it. That's called an ad hominem fallacy. That means that because I don't like the source, what they say cannot be true or must be wrong. I didn't like President Bush, but when he said things that were true, they were true. Even a clock that's, that's stopped is right twice a day. So I'm not going to you know, dismiss out of hand a statement solely because I dislike the person it comes from. I'm going to examine the statement. Is it true? Well, folks, it is true. There's a shitload of jobs that need to be done in this country that the average American worker doesn't want to do. And trust me, your 16, 18-year-old kid that's looking for a job won't take that job or he'd have it right now. Anybody out there that says they need a job, can't find one, go to, go to, go to Florida and, and say you're there to pick oranges. They'll let you do it. On piecework, you'll probably be fired in the first day because you don't go fast enough. It's the truth. But we would rather hate each other for that. I'm sick of seeing bumper stickers that say stuff like the one I saw this morning when I had to run my wife somewhere. I said, this is America. We speak English. Learn it or leave. Land of the free, home of the brave. Speak our language or get the hell out. Think about how incongruent those two things are. Now, here's how I feel. As a business owner or as a public servant, that's a public servant even more so, okay? because you're using taxpayer money to do it, don't expect me to provide services to you in a language that's not of this country. You, if you need an interpreter, you go get one. Or learn English. I don't care. Do either one. But you're responsible for yourself like I'm responsible for myself. People get upset because a business provides options in Spanish or provides customer service in Spanish. I don't get upset. I think it's great. If I was a business owner and I could get customer service people that spoke 20 languages, I would hire them all day long. If I could get somebody on the phone that happens to be from China that speaks broken English and they're trying to understand complex instructions from my CSR, and they can say, oh, you speak Chinese, hold on a second, and pull another CSR on the line that speaks Chinese so that they can understand each other and get the problem corrected faster so that I have a satisfied customer and I've spent less money to get the problem solved, I would want to hire that person all day long. Why wouldn't you? That's called the free market. Don't be pissed when the free market you claim to love works. See, but you, 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 you're having a hard time with this, many of you, right now. This is really bothering you. 
It's really you kind of just like somebody's dragging their nails across a chalkboard, some of you feel. But why? Why would the truth be so discouraging? Why would the, the truth be so disturbing? Because you've been programmed to believe something. And the very fact that it's challenged hurts. It requires you to rethink the way you treat other people. Don't you think maybe we should? See, here's how I feel. So every once in a while I do a voice, like I talk like the dope smoking hippie from California, yeah, right? Now here's the thing. I will stand up for that dope smoking hippie's rights. Because my rights are shit unless he has his rights too. If he wants to smoke dope, as long as he's not stealing my TV set to play, pay for it, I don't care. I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. I'll speak up for homosexual people, not because I find their behavior to be something that I want to see, or that I'm even comfortable with it. But because if they don't have a right, then I don't have that right either. Even if I do, I don't really have it. Either we have the same rights because we're citizens in equal station of the United States of America, or my right is a privilege. Hello? You got that? If we don't have equal station as citizens in a right, if any segment of society is denied a right, then those of us who are not denied that right do not have a right in the eyes of our government or in our own eyes. We've created a privilege for ourselves. And all of this, all of this, all of this, God bless you, Jason, all of this has been achieved by tearing the fabric of social capital out of our country. It's been done with families. Think about this. Here's another irrational thing. Well, I don't want our tax dollars paying for birth control for all these people. The same person, do you know what they said yesterday? I wish all these people on welfare quit squirting out babies. Really? Really? Think about it. Think about that. Think about how incongruent those two thoughts are. Those two ends shall not ever meet. I'm not saying we should do one or the other. Personally, there'd be no social welfare the way we have it today if I was in charge. But if it's going to be there, and we have this multi-billion dollar expense that gets bigger every time there's more people on that program, think about it. You wish they'd stop squirting out babies, but you don't want to pay for their condoms. You'd rather pay for their babies, I guess. Again, I'm not saying we should do either one. I'm just saying if you're... Because most of these people that make these statements are generally okay with the system. They just want to alter it to fit what they want. Usually at the expense of somebody else. See, if you're a liberal Democrat, my problem with you isn't the way you want to live. It's the way you want me to live. If you're a conservative Republican, my problem with you is not the way that you want to live. It's the way that you want me to live. If we actually had strong social capital ties to each other, if we actually valued each other, if we actually thought what's good for us, for any one of us, as long as it's not at the expense of somebody else, is good for us all. Then we might actually have conversations about this. We might actually get along. We might actually fix their problems. 
we might actually develop a hundred different paths for young people to be educated so that each individual can find the path that is best for them rather than to be institutionalized and programmed with preset and predetermined goals. Do you realize how asinine it is, the public education system, when you think about it that way? We've created a system that has been homogenized and equalized to be the same for about 100 million students. Really 300 million Americans, because we all went through it at one time or another. But at any given time, about a third of our society is in some form of quote-unquote school that we've, we've misled ourselves to believe is education. <laughs> It's preposterous that something could be so universal that it could be the same for 100 million people at the same time. It's ridiculous that everybody would learn the same way. In the words of Einstein, if you judged a fish on its ability to climb a tree and tested it on that ability, it would leave its, leave its entire life believing itself to be stupid. So we mock who we consider stupid when they might possibly be more intelligent than we are, just in different ways. And it's all through, it's all through destroying social capital between groups. The groups that most need to speak are the ones with the most differentiated ideas. And there's groups doing it. There's groups that meet. we got a rabbi, a priest, and, and an imam. And it's not a joke. We need more of those. We need more of those. Everybody in this audience that's either Jewish or Christian of any permutation should understand that the God the Muslim prays to is the same God you pray to. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. I am that I am. They may have a different view. You may disagree with it. That's okay. It doesn't mean you can't respect someone who prays to the same God you do. Even if they have a different vision into it. How can you respect as a Protestant a Catholic if you can't respect a Muslim? How can you respect a Jewish person if you're a Catholic without respecting a Muslim? It's incongruent. But they want to kill people. No, I think people that want to kill people are crazy. right? And they need to go to crazy town. And if they need to go to crazy town with a bullet in their head, that's fine with me too. Okay, That's not Muslim, that's crazy town. Now just because there's a whole bunch of murderous people that claim the faith of Islam right now doesn't mean that Islam has the problem. It means those crazy people have a problem. And boy, that's a lot more political than it is religious, folks. It really is. As long as there's been religion and as long as there's been politics, when the two come together, there's been mass murder and death. That's why this republic was founded on the notion that the government and the religious institutions are supposed to go do their own damn things. Government was to stay out of religion, and religion was to not use the power of government. You can come to government, you can serve in government, you can have a deep, devout faith in whatever God you want to have. You can make your decisions in part based on that faith. But you can't use the government to enforce your will of your faith on others who do not share it. It's a pretty simple way to run a society. It's a pretty open and honest way to run a society. It's a pretty free way to run a society. It's too bad we've never actually done it. 
We have a system that is perfectly designed to be run this way, and, and yet we, we fail to do it. There's been religious people using the power of government to control other people in this country since its inception. And there's been government using its power to attack people of faith in this country ever since its inception. <laughs> and the entire thing was supposed to be designed for those two things not to happen. And how do you, how do you ensure that you can continuously do exactly the opposite of what you've been charged to do when you're a person of power? You make sure the people you have power over hate each other. That they're divided. That they attack each other. You destroy the fabric of social capital in your, in its entirety in your citizenry, and then they are simply not even sheep. Because sheep are easily led, but at least you have to lead them. If the people of this country were sheep, as sad as it would be, we'd be better off. But we're not sheep. We're not led by shepherds. We're cattle. Viewed as a herd. And we're milked and our blood is drained. We're like the cattle of the Maasai. They'd love to eat our flesh But it's too valuable while it has work to be done. So they'll milk you and bleed you and milk you and bleed you and milk you and bleed you and make you blame the cow standing next to you for your problems. And when you've been milked and bled to the point where you can bleed and be milked no more, then they'll slaughter you. USA number one. That's the society that we live in. And to be fair, it's the society that most of the world lives in today. It doesn't have to be. The day you can start having respectful conversations with the people you vehemently have idealistic disagreements with, and you can actually figure out where you do agree, and you can learn to coexist with each other, then we have survival. Then we can actually move past survival and move into fulfilling the destiny that we, we truly have in front of us as a species. Again, I have no problem with the way the progressive socialist wants to live. I have a problem with their desire to make me live that way too. I have no desire to change the faith or beliefs of the religious adherent. I just don't want to be subjected To, to live as they choose to live. I have no problem with the person who has an incredible sense of pride and nationalism as long as you don't try to shove it down my throat. I ask only to be respected as your fellow human being, to be allowed to live my life my way until such time as I infringe upon your rights, and I ask only that you do not infringe upon mine. And friends, you know what we call that? Son of a gun, if that isn't the philosophy of anarchy. I know you don't believe me, but you'll have to trust me. Give me a little credit. I think I have some social capital with you. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.